Want to be more thorough while also working faster? It doesn't matter if you're on the red or blue team, an augmented reality overlay can enable you to be more thorough and faster at the same time. No glasses, no goggles, Polarity delivers this superpower as an overlay on top of your existing workflow and tools. The free community edition connects to the data you care about to overlay the context you need to make informed decisions. Apply for early access today at securityweekly.com forward slash polarity. PlexTrack is the platform that helps cybersecurity practitioners get the daily work done. Red teams can create reports in half the time and track risk to resolution with the blue team. Teams can centralize remediation efforts across all scans, assessments, and audits. Effectively communicate risk in real time through simple visualizations, scanner and ticketing integrations, and robust analytics. FlexTrack is perfect for collaboration across all teams. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash FlexTrack to claim your free month. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Do you want to stay in the loop all things Security Weekly? Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to your favorite podcast catcher or our YouTube channel. Sign up for our mailing list and join our Discord server. That's securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Also, in case you missed Security Weekly Unlocked, you can now access all of the content on demand, whether you registered before the live event or not, by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked and clicking the link to register. And now on for the security news. John is still with us. John, thanks for joining us for the news. Yay. Heck yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's going to be the really kind of fun news segment. I, I got some some little hidden gems in there. Hopefully, uh, you guys have had uh, time to review them. Where, hidden gems. Where Whoa. do we want to start with the security news? Wait, let's What's start. Your... Oh, let's start with WT54G history. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Larry, it was really funny. Larry put this link in the show notes. And, and, I, and, and I got to give him credit. This came from Ming Chao in oh, Discord. Nice. And I and he said this smells like Paul and Larry and I'm like, what is this? Well, yeah. Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> so it says WRT54G history, the router that accidentally went open source. And I started reading and it started going in the history of Linksys and how the WRT54G came about. And I'm like reading it, going, I are they going to mention the book? Are they going to mention the book? Maybe they'll mention the book. I won't be upset. I'm prepping myself. I'm like if they don't mention they the book, freaking I'm mention not, the book. I'm not going to be upset. And then they mention the book. Freaking huge with a screenshot of the book with Larry and I's names. Like, on it. I was like, oh, I'm like that's cool. Like I feel like now we are officially part and, of WT54G. And then a breakout sidebar commentary on the book of like, yeah. you know, it became a cult classic when there's a 400 page book on it. Yeah, I'm like. I sent this to to the folks at work this morning and said, you know, uh, today in the the Larry feels old, uh, you know, it, you know, on today's episode of Larry feels old, um, you know, there's an article about the Linksys WRT54G where they use legendary and you know like radical and mm-hmm. you know cult classic and they reference the book that Paul and I wrote on it, like right. you know. The imposter syndrome is, you know, is high today. Yeah, like, <laughs> like I, you know, we can't put ourselves and claim that we're part of the history. I think there needs to be some kind of external validation, and that yep. was a, that was a really cool kind of validation point that yeah. the work that Larry and I collectively put into the book, um, you know, was appreciated in in part of that mm-hmm. history, which I found interesting too. From the article, is still very much alive today. Like you can still buy a WT fifty four GL router, mm-hmm. um, which is fully open sourced, and you can hack away and put different firmware on it. So, mm-hmm. 
And uh, there's, in, there's, in the article, was there also a quote from George Takai? No, no, there was not. Okay, we're not Keep quite open. that legendary, Jeff. Keep open. <laughs> Very cool. I is am. your book still available for sale? It is. Is, is it? It is. Yep. Uh, well, if if evidenced by the last royalty check that we got. Mm. So sorry, the last royalty notification. <laughs> it wasn't a check because <laughs> we haven't met the income earning to for them to cut us the fifty dollar check. <laughs> Ever uh, or just not recently? Not recently. Not recently. But in, uh, not in yeah. any time even remotely recently. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh yeah. that said, if you'd like a copy, um we're Go doing the purge. You Go know, and, yeah. and, and, and I, I was gonna say Google search and you can find the PDF yeah, somewhere oh, on definitely. the internet. Yeah. And if you want a signed copy, uh, limited availability, I think I probably have six copies at home. Yep. Yeah, I'm oh. going to keep one for me. I can digitally I, sign the PDF I, I and like email it to you. Paul, because Paul wrote it. Oh, God, I, I got to get one, Larry. I need to find an audio version. Oh, There is no audio version. Just on, Well, then, Paul, you have to read it to me. I have to, that'd be mm. painstaking. And now <laughs> type dot forward slash WL space mm. dash I. Crap. That so, was pretty special right there. That was like a T-Mobile. Yep, so T-Mobile hotspot version. <clears throat> and the I believe on the side of that, the uh, void your warranty sticker has been removed on one side. I, I think it was on the bottom. But it was on the bottom. There was a sticker on the side. There was a sticker on the side that's weird. Like Maybe on that model, the void your warranty. But, but, it, but it's not sealing anything. Oh, okay. but, but clearly the void your warranty is was, is not on there because well. we did. Oh, look, Larry still remembers <laughs> how to take it apart. Duh. I was saying, did you take it apart in the first five minutes or ten minutes? We took yeah, several uh, for the book. We took several apart. The, the sad, imagine. The, the sad part is, Paul. Some didn't make it. It's the, very sad. No, I mean, the sad part is, is that I kept all of mine. We had a, we had a stack of like yeah. ten or fifteen a piece, and then you're like, yeah, I'm cleaning shit out. Do you want this box from me? Yeah, I have your box too. Right. Um. So yeah, I I have. I have all of them there that we go. actually used for the book. You know, the sad part is, is that, you know, based on this article, we should sign a bunch of them and auction them for charity. We should. That'd be cool. We really should. Oh, yes, should. that would be awesome. That, that's Just, a great uh, idea. All right. So there we go. There right. we go. That's Said and done. Yep. We're going to, we're going to auction a bunch of them. Some of them in working condition, some of them not. And, uh, we were yeah, actually not, like I said, not all like made it. sometimes when you see things like no animals were harmed in the filming of this movie like there was definitely harm done to WG54G's oh, in the writing of the book yes. like not uh, all of them made it through yep. and it's very sad and the and the irony is I still have three of these in production oh that's really funny so I was yep. there was a, there was a quest comment on the on the discord channel that said Linksys made one with a PCMCIA slot for a 3G hotspot did you ever run into that I think we did I don't we didn't test it for the book but we Definitely saw them. Oh yeah, yeah, or heard about them, or read about them. I don't know that we ever tested one. And, yep. And then you know that that put us down a whole interesting path, Paul. Um, you know, Did. specifically when we started looking at like all of the other things that were possible with some of these routers, and one of them uh, was the uh, the BT Home Hub. Yep. The British Telecom Home Hub, and we're like, <laughs> oh, we still want one. And somebody sent me one. Yep. And I still have it. Still have that one too. Still yep. have it. Hey, so. Um, if you were considering moving on to the next story, do you mind if I shamelessly promote something? Oh, yes, please you do. Totally, you totally should shamelessly plug. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, okay. Well, I'm going to make my uh, shameless, shameless plug here. It's, it's really not a shameless plug. It is just my upcoming class. I have a new class I'm about to launch next week, January the 19th, first day. 
It is called Enterprise Attacker Emulation and C2 Implant Development. We are going to do all kinds of cool things. We are going to talk about developing a C2 channel in C Sharp. We're going to talk about shellcode delivery mechanisms in Golang, in Python, in C Sharp again. We're going to talk about some evasion techniques. We're going to talk about lots of great stuff related to initial access operations uh, for both uh, purple teaming or assumed compromise uh, exercises as well as potential uh, red teaming techniques. Um, and we're going to focus from a programming perspective and teach you some skills that you can develop your own code uh, to perform some of the evasion techniques needed to actually get yourself C2 channels up and running in environments as a penetration tester. So I hope you will take a look at it. Uh, I posted the registration link in Discord. Uh, it is in the events training channel. And uh, the quick and dirty link is just bit.ly slash Joff's C2 class with a capital J, capital C, and capital C again. Uh, but go look at that training link, and we still have room for some more folks. And the other really, really cool thing about the class is that we are donating a portion of the proceeds to underrepresented people in the information security community uh, as a result of the fees that are collected from the class, um, that portion of the proceeds uh, will be uh, tweeted out and announced after the class is completed. Uh, not the actual numbers, but uh, the charities that we are don donating to. Um, just so you know, demographically, the most underrepresented people in the information security community today are women. Uh, we state it that way generically because that figure may change in the future, but we're really excited that we have a charitable portion uh, of the uh, program there. So there it is. Really excited. Um, the class, oh, just one more thing I forgot to say. The class is going to be four days. Uh, it's only, it's a very easy pace, four hours a day, so 16 hours total material. Um, you will be given uh, access to an Azure virtual machine, and you will be given access to all the materials as part of the class and that you can download uh, and retain, and also all of the source code that's made available be, will be available via deployment keys for 90 days following the start of the class. So there you go. I'm super excited to teach it. I'm pretty sure Tyler's coming to, to play uh, in the class with me, which would be awesome. And I think Larry is interested as well. Yeah, but perhaps the next uh, one. I was definitely interested, but uh, by the time I realized, like, oh, sh damn it, I really need to take this. It's next week and I'm booked on customer work. Like, I really thought, like, I, I'm, I've been thinking about, it, like, can I do this during the, during the week and, like, do work at night, but I'm writing a SANS course and I'm like, that's my work at night. And so like having three jobs next week is not in my family's best interest. So I'm going to wait for the next one. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get going to do it again. And, and just so you know, we're charging a nominal $495. Uh, it's yeah. a very uh, attainable fee for most folks. I think that uh, is, is going to work for, for most people. And uh, we even have some folks from community colleges that are attending uh, because um, some of their professors decided to sponsor them. In fact, Doug White was actually really good with some of his folks in Rhode Island, uh, bringing some, some students into the class. So we're going to have a bunch of fun. It's going to be very casual. It's, it's just going to be just a, a really good time. Uh, and I am a couple of things, actually. We're going to put on another class 
certainly somewhere in uh, the second quarter uh, to to pick up a second run. Uh, and uh, I am looking at the possibility, if there's enough demand, of doing an after-hours class U.S. Eastern time to see if I can pick up uh, some of my friends in Southeast Asia uh, that's on a more accommodating uh, time zone for them. So That's awesome. Sweet. Hey, I have a much quicker announcement, if I may. Yeah. If I may. Go for it. Since we're, not, uh, since we're taking next week off and people aren't going to be able to watch any of our shows, they can tune into the next episode of Darknet Diaries. It's going to feature not one but two former NSA cryptographers. Hmm. Oh, so we are. We I taking, have, you know, I haven't seen a new episode of Darknet Diaries in my my podcast yeah, feeds yeah. in in a while, and I'm not sure. Like, I use Spotify and mostly I listen in the car, um, and it it Android Auto does like weird things. Um, I don't know if he hasn't released an episode in a while. One of my favorite podcasts, though, is Darknet Diaries, and Jeff, the fact some, that you're going to be on it, I'm I'm so excited. Yeah, he he drops them uh, every two weeks or so he claims. So the next one is supposed to drop next Tuesday, the nineteenth. Sweet, that's awesome. I will definitely uh, move that to the tops of my podcast listening. Are Along you curious? With- Take gets uh, uh, who the who the second ex NSA cryptographer is going to be talk uh, be on the episode. You NSA cryptographer specific? Was it someone else in the pit or was it a cryptographer? No, nope. no, nope. it's Matt someone. Damon. Brian, Brian Snow. No, no. I only know so many NSA uh, cryptographers off the top of my head. Like Jeff Mann, Brian Snow, and then it starts to taper off after that. <laughs> All right, give up, give up. I give up. Yep. Or do you want to, or do you want to be surprised? No, I want you to tell us. Uh, Marcus Carey. Oh, nice. Really? Yep. Nice. So it's like an NSA-focused episode. Marcus and then me. That's Very great. good. Looking forward to it, and I, and I am very honored to to share the share the the time with Marcus. Fantastic, um, uh, Lee. Lee re- re- and real so- real quick, uh, John, I sent, sent you a link to the uh, the news mm. stories in that other Slack uh, as a DM, so uh, you might want to check ah. that out. So yeah, you know Thanks. what the context is now. So uh, both Larry and Lee had the Mimecast story. And I wanted to dig into it for a little bit. It, there seems to be a trend that is coming into the public eye, which means it's probably been a trend for a while, uh, in that attackers are... Well, first, Mimecast um, has suffered a breach. I thought the more interesting part was that the attackers were after the certificate used to authenticate the company's products to Microsoft 365, and that seems yep. to be a juicy target. Mm-hmm. Someone that's closer to this than I am, I think I want to call on Tyler. Uh, like, knock, knock, can Tyler come out and play? Uh, <laughs> on, on, on this one, because I want to see you talk about this before, Tyler. Yeah, this this is a common issue that we're running into with uh, Azure and O365 and the permissions that applications are granted. So you have a couple different types of permissions that that are in play here. Uh, you have application permissions, but you also have authentication permissions, right? You have users that allow applications to do certain things and that's uh, or authenticate that, in a certain way. That's yep. OAuth that lets you you do that, right? When you give an Correct. application permission to do things to your account on your behalf, it should 
I, I stress should <laughs> list what permissions it's requesting and you grant that and then it has those permissions. Exactly, exactly. And when you're talking about Azure, one of the things that people don't realize is you're talking about Active Directory in the cloud, right? You still mm -hmm. have the concept of users. You still have the concept of groups. You still have the concept of uh, permissions. Uh, you're just losing some of the the authentication protocols and and the typical nature of of Active Directory. But the way in which you're granting access to things like appliances or federation or things to uh, leverage the hybrid nature of how communication is happening over O365, then you're starting to talk about things like certificates and something wait, like so, this. Hold on, Tyler, sorry, question. So when you say federated identity, that's like <clears throat> we've got a bunch of users in Azure AD or Microsoft Active Directory and we recognize this group of users in maybe Google G Suite, and those users in G Suite should have this level of permissions when they authenticate to us, and that's federated identity in a nutshell, sort of, kind of? Kind of. So federated, typically, when you're talking about O365, you're talking about a hybrid solution where you have an Active Directory on-prem uh, that leverages an account with inside of Active Directory, the AD Connect account, that then syncs your Active Directory from on-prem into the cloud and or mm -hmm. vice versa yep. for certain things. And that federation then allows uh, authentication to stream and and different services to be leveraged between the two. Right. And so Mimecast, where they're leveraging O365 and O365 Exchange, now you're outsourcing essentially your exchange function and the mail function of, of what you're doing and in order for Mimecast to work, you've got to put something in between or integrate into your exchange. And so in order to do that, you've also got to authorize it to be able to have certain levels of permissions to read all the mail, to receive it all, uh, to do certain functions at the exchange level mm -hmm. that are highly, highly permissioned. Now, that becomes very interesting when you start talking about a breach in this certificate that is stolen oh. because you can do a lot of things to all of the mail and so uh, from that access. My, and I, I don't want to pick on – I don't like to pick on vendors in general, especially like to pick on ones that are sponsors. And I'm not picking, <laughs> I'm not picking on Mimecast. I mean, I'm just being fully transparent, yeah, but right? Then, but then again, we call it like we see it. We call it like Vendor we see not. it. Yeah. And, of course – SolarWinds has had issues. Lots mm -hmm. of vendors have had sure. have issues. Lots of enterprises have had issues. Like everyone suffers a breach. Okay, but the reason that Mimecast is a nice juicy target is there one or a very small number of certificates that if you were to compromise, you could then gain permissions to all of Mimecast customers. Is that way I understand yes. it? Mm. Essentially, because Mimecast, well, depending on how they're deploying it, Mimecast is leveraging typically a deployed appliance or a virtual appliance of some kind right. uh, or leveraging a certificate for uh, essentially a man in the middle for the mail, right? You have right. to have that relay for exchange. And this and is so not unique. I mean, in Mimecast, not unique to Mimecast, right? Any not other, unique to Mimecast. Right, you're trusting providers that are you are leveraging these services OAuth is in similar things are used for, you know, things like, oh, I want this service to access my Google Drive, yep. etc. Et you know, all kinds of these enterprise services. Greathorn, for example, right? Um, what uh, actually Ryan was just talking about with uh, Gmail. If they're leveraging the API, you have to trust another platform to be able to access the email so that they can help you, they can help protect it, right? Yep. So these are trust Absolutely. relationships that we're building 
across all kinds of different companies and services, not yeah. specific. Jeff has a question. Yeah. Jeff. Proof, proof point. Well, it's quick, quick clarification. Are. Quick clarification wow. question from the Discord. Mm. When you say certificate, are you meaning an authentication token? In this case, for this access, yes, I believe that is what this would be referred to. Are you now, have, not having looked at the appliance, like I understand how the appliance SAML works and the transport, but I think it's a SAML. I think it's a, a SAML token yeah. is yeah. the proper like what it would be called. Right, the certificate to create the other SAML up. tickets. Certs, yeah. Yep. Yep. And because that that transport has to be trusted in order to do certain actions on exchange uh, and integrate with O365, right, uh, whether you're federated or not, that becomes a very juicy target. And mm. I will be curious to see if this comes out of play from, you know, other breaches or from information discovered from other recent breaches yeah tyler i mean it's 2021 we can just say all roads lead back to solar winds is you know it's, it's fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean we've seen a lot of tech companies compromised and mm. I, I like we said this is probably the tip of the iceberg yeah but what were they what were they after and was this just a proof of concept to kind of see if they can leverage the certificate or are they leveraging the certificate against other organizations that are very interesting or uh, more objective targets for it. And, and this so is what we talked about when we were covering the solar winds uh, breach in an incident for the first time. There was information in some of those articles that talked about some of the certificates and trust they were after. Very much the same thing. If you could compromise, you know, Microsoft certificates that they were using to allow users and enterprises to have trust in Microsoft services to other services and, and things like that. That's the and I find this really scary and fascinating that when we look at a certain level of threat actor, the fact that they're having the forethought to go, like they're thinking big, essentially. Like, hey, we can compromise solar winds, and that one breach is going to give us access to those organizations. But that wasn't even as big as they were thinking. Once we're in those organizations, what is the number one crown jewel that we can go after? Oh, Let's compromise the certificates that allow us to exploit the trust that their customers have with their services. That to me is, that's kind of, that's, that's how we would think with our evil hats on, right? And that's obviously how the actual threat actors that are not the good people are thinking today. That's the kind of stuff we bring up in threat models and mm -hmm. people tell us we're nuts. I, and then I agree. a few years later it happens. Yes, so true. Yeah, I think one of the, the key things to keep in mind, though, for, for something like this is the type of certificate that, that, if I remember right, for how Mimecast actually handles that, that transportation layer, this would allow someone to, to impersonate, right? Like yes. it, it would provide a valid connection. That, but that also means that you would have to be either man in the middle or you would have to find some way to leverage that with a secondary application that is leveraging that certificate to make it an, a valid connection to something. And so I don't think this is the end of the end of the road or end of the goal. I think this is kind of, again, the tip of the iceberg. There's There's got to be something else in play, and I believe there's going to be another piece of software uh, or some other attack. Maybe this is to decrypt stuff in a country that has the ability to do man-in-the-middle very easily or a, an organization that's already infiltrated and, and can have that kind of connection uh, and decryption happen. So 
Uh, I don't think this is. I think someone stumbled upon this, and this is probably not the uh, not the end of the road or end of the game for what we're going to find for this. Mm. It's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, oh, where are we going next? Um, hey, if you don't mind, I'd like to do one that's yeah. a little bit uh, a little bit off the wall. Um, sure. It's not my story number five, but it's the story number one, um, and the. The article is the the title is very innocuous, um, and think about <clears throat> having to deal with legacy equipment in your environment. Um, imagine, if you will, that a satellite launched in 1964 is still orbiting the Earth, and while the batteries have completely graded themselves and are no longer working hmm. the satellite itself is still working <clears throat> still in and, orbit and anyway, still right? in orbit and is still working and powers up when the solar panels uh receive enough energy to power the circuit and then it starts transmitting interesting it's still out there uh so yeah, that sounds like a movie plot yeah so tra- so uh transit uh 5b5 launched in 1964 <laughs> is the oldest working satellite uh, broadcasting an intermittent sidle- signal on the 137 megahertz band. The problem is um, that no one knows how to decode the protocol anymore. Except the, <laughs> the robots that are receiving that signal and will kill us all. Yep, kill all humans. It'll, but it'll only be active for, what, a few hours a day when it gets enough power it, from the solar it, panels? Exactly. You know that- that sounds like a challenge, like yeah. to the hacker community. Like, they like should just that, round up a few folks. Like that's kind of the point. Like they're yeah. they're working on decoding the signal and what it does and what the control resources are. And um, so you, you read through the article, and you know there's all sorts of interesting stuff there. And they've done some decodes, and they've got some uh, GNU radio blocks on receiving it and doing the demodulation. Uh, and the prob- the conclusion is there is none. There's still an awful lot to figure out about transit, the equipment on board and it's downlink which will only come with time data and analysis hmm. like which, which article is this uh this is my story number one jeff number one yep you know thank you could we could we replace one of the packet decoding op- operations in 503 with decoding this hmm. Hmm. maybe <laughs> no it actually it feels like something would be a, a hell of a ctf kind of thing it would be really it, it, quite you, challenging see, to see. that could see. that could fit well in the uh the uh, the network forensics class. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yep. It, I mean, but Jeff, you know, it sounds like a puzzle, right? Yep. The, yeah, the, you know, you know, the other one that, that this sounds like an amazing thing for a CTF is that uh, at DefCon last year they did the um, the you know hack space, and I forget who that was. Oh yeah, uh, Space what, Force what? Did, or some variety that they did the uh, the satellite hacking challenge thing, and this sounds like an amazing thing uh, to be able to and do. Let, uh, and let this be a lesson to all you developers out there. Document your damn code. Yeah, well, the problem, <laughs> Jeff, the problem is that it is likely documented, but it's behind so much obscurity and or classified that no one can get access to it, or it's been unclassified and no one knows where to find it. It's in Warehouse 13. Yeah. Exactly. It's right next it's to... It's in that warehouse where the, the Ark... The, the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant is, yeah. Yep. I, and I believe that's supposed to be the same warehouse, by the way. Yep. Yep. So that could the, be dead wrong. And this is very so thinking and thinking about the technology involved and the 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 signals and all this type of stuff. For me, this is a really neat thing. 
software-defined radio-wise, in that, you know, this satellite 1964 is still out there and working, uh, and it's kind of an unknown signal. We can go and decode it, but it's from space um, and is very related to that, uh, the challenge that they, the, the CTF that they did at uh, DEF CON this year that, you know, as part of a team, I didn't get any points for the team because you know, life happened. But one of the things that I was going to try to do was to do uh, some communication with the International Space Station. Like, we're sending packets to the International Space Station and back down and trying to receive it. And there were no passes of the ISS near me at the time during during the competition so i was kind of dead in the water mm. but related i learned a whole bunch um uh, you know within the last week uh, across a bunch of different platforms in that uh, noaa satellites uh, noaa weather satellites fly overhead and uh, they have predictable paths and i built a system based on someone else's instructions that now sits under my front deck with a nice antenna a helical antenna in my front yard um, which needs to move because it's in the middle of the grass with a wire to it <clears throat> um, that goes and captures all of the weather satellite data for all of the NOAA mm. satellites that go overhead. But Neat. not only does it capture the satellite data, it decodes it and renders it to images and hosts it at AWS in a static AWS website, which I had to learn a whole bunch about Amazon uh, uh, S3 buckets um, and CloudFront and a whole bunch of other mm -hmm. stuff to actually host. Mm. Like, <laughs> oh my God, I just figured it out. It's a counter and it's counting down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nice, hey, Larry. Yeah. Um, uh, so I was I was playing with a similar thing a while back and I stopped, but I was building a, a dipole. Yeah. Uh, for a thousand megahertz. Um, so I was curious. Um, and it works really well, by the way. I was tracking planes. Yeah, 1,090 megahertz, yep, ADS-B. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and which was really funny. I was using software, and, and, uh, and my wife walked in, and she goes, is that planes on the map? She goes, is that legal? I'm like, well, mm -hmm. they're transmitting. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. Hello. Uh, it's kind of cool. So what frequency uh, uh, range were you talking about there with the weather satellites? Uh, it's typically around 137 megahertz. Um, okay. And you can receive that weather, uh, the weather quote weather facts NOAA satellite data with a dipole antenna holes, you know, placed on the ground at a specific degree angle. And I was doing that. Um, Do you need a ham radio license to be able to receive? Nope, that you okay. don't receive because you're not transmitting. Because you're not transmitting. Yeah, receiving um, you can receive. Yep. Mm -hmm. And and literally, I was using the inexpensive software defined radio, the RTL SDR that we use in the the SAN six six seventeen class to that, do that. That was going to be my next question mm -hmm. because yes. that's what I use for the plane data too. The yep. RTL. Yeah. You, you just need to. Set the yeah. the antennas at a specific length and at a, you know put it close to the ground, parallel to the ground, and you know be out there at the right time. But this does all of that automatically, and the dipole antenna you know in a V shape is not the best because the the RF signal has a specific sort of pattern. Um, and what you really want is a specific helical type of antenna, and I, I don't remember whether it's clockwise or counterclockwise helical antenna. Something about reflection, refraction, scatter, all, all, of, all of the above. All right? of those yeah. things. Yeah. And um, um, the, the polarity of the antenna and mm -hmm. the polarity changes. Um, and I tried to buy one of these antennas the really good helical antennas and I couldn't find anywhere to buy one of these antennas. It's like, frustrating when you've got like a really specific piece of hardware yep, and you yep. can't find it. Like and I hate every, that. And everywhere said, oh yeah, you can build it. It just takes like a couple and dollars of supplies. Yes. And, and, and literally, yeah, it's a couple dollars of supplies 
and about eight hours worth of work. And I'm like, I don't have eight yeah. hours. And a soldering yeah, iron. I got, right. I, 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 yeah, the, we got all the, that, the, yes. I, but, but I have about 300 other projects already. Yeah, the, yeah. it's just a matter of priority. Yeah, I and, agree. and that's like the uh, the linear antenna I built for the 1,000 megahertz stuff. I, I mean, making one of those is short sections of coax yep. and just reversing the the polarity all the way up but yep. but it takes forever to solder that crap oh yeah, yeah solder it like oh I'll, I'll i'll send you some some tips you don't need to solder anything yeah, I, built, I built one in 20 minutes sitting in front of the tv after i cut stuff like just and but i one of my former students in 617 uh i'm on a discord and uh he mentioned he was doing something similar and he found an antenna and i'm like where did you get that antenna? And he said, oh, I got it from here. And I, I can share links with people who ask and, and those types of things. The problem is, is that the antenna was $350. Ow. But you Ow. know what? My bill rate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, huh? yeah. That like it was worth $350 and I bought one. You know, and I was, it. yes. Yeah, it was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, um, you know, I've got this. You know, ham radio porn mag here. <laughs> oh my god, that's so, so that magazine is in my bathroom right now. And, and, and then, I got, then I got then I got the handheld in my hand. It, it will this will do one thirty seven megahertz. Yes, what the hell? Yes, it will. Yes, um, it will. So will your uh, RTL SDR from uh, yes, and uh, yes, I just gotta find it. Yep. So yeah, we we. Go on the geeky radio bit. Yeah, you um, guys are really you're popular with the ladies, huh? We totally, totally. <laughs> no, I, got, I got laid so much in high school. Let me show you my radio. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's all in the antenna. <laughs> yep. So yeah, you you cross the geek with uh, you know technology, uh, IT technology. Um, I, I recently dove into uh, some digital radio formats, um, uh, specifically. Um, and I'm trying to remember the the technology, but it uses the awful name Brandmeister uh, repeater network. And effectively, what's happening here is you can transmit RF to a repeater, and it backhauls over the internet. Mm-hmm. And you have specific talk groups like the old Nextel type type of phones and that type of stuff. Oh, um, is that like I have a the app that lets me listen to people who are listening to police scanners and, and yeah. stuff like that and relaying it? Like kind, kind of yeah. like that. Yeah, that's a, that would be the repeater. Yeah. Uh, but the repeaters are there, but the backhaul is all done over IP. Mm-hmm. And to the point that um, the for me at home with this network, with this digital mode, I cannot reach the repeater nearest to me. But you can build your own repeater on a Raspberry Pi and a shield, and it backhauls over Ethernet. It's what it comes oh. down to. A lot of I, I just yeah. need a Raspberry Pi and some some supplies and. Yep. So yeah. I, I built I, I built one. I actually built two, um, and uh, you know the the RF ha- RF, sanctu- RF hackers sanctuary. The guys that do the uh, RF uh, the the Wi Fi. Um, uh, CTF at DEFCON and mm-hmm. the, the Wi-Fi Village folks uh, they have their own talk group and they do a weekly net check-in and I actually checked into the net last night with Zero Chaos and, and oh, folks nice. Nice. and uh, you know, using the hotspot that I built plugged into my Ethernet network that you know the, the radio communication was local to my house and I built one to go in my truck and it connects to my cell phone so it connects back so like over a, Wi-Fi a over CB 5G. radio that backhauls over IP you got it yeah you got it but you do need a license for it. So. You you are definitely popular with the ladies, uh, dude. <laughs> you have no idea. I, can't, I gotta beat him off with a stick. 
Oh, <laughs> where do we follow that up? Oh, well, let's follow that up with the legal marketplaces. I mean, why not? So Darknet, sure. Darknet was taken, Dark Market, rather, was taken offline. This is not the yeah. same Dark Market. There was like 2009 Dark Market, yep. and then there was like today Dark Market, because I guess people that deal in these Dark Market things aren't very creative about how they name and things. They're, dark, they do, how, they're not very creative about how they name their Dark Market? Yes, and they just keep naming it Dark <laughs> I guess, I don't know. I guess maybe that's a strategy. Like, oh, they already took off dark market. So if we name ours dark market, like people think that's just one that's already been taken offline and they won't take us offline. But they occupied these underground facilities that were NATO owned in Germany and formerly NATO owned, formerly NATO owned. And they were in Germany and in Denmark, I think. And uh, Denmark, that, is that the old? Is that the old one or the new one? The new one the is new one. over in the Ukraine. This is, this is the new I, one. I might have been to the one in Germany, but I'm not saying that out loud. Yep. No, yeah, no. I remember hearing that they had the, yeah, the twenty servers uh, hosting a site in Moldova and Ukraine, and arrested an Australian man who's believed to be the operator. Um, they were the largest underground uh, marketplace. And oh, hold on, I had some different quotes from the article that I thought were. Were really interesting. Where is it? Where is my? Because yeah, Lee, you be had this. Aussie, they arrested it. Yeah. <laughs> Lee, you had the story I, as well. I, yeah. So they raided uh, in September 2019 um, mm -hmm. a small town close to the Luxembourg border. Yep, uh, I remember that one. Eight defendants, Germans and one Bulgarian. Um, they were aiding and abetting 249,000 transactions involving drugs, money laundering, stolen information, and pornographic images of children. So child porn was being trafficked on here mm -hmm. as well. Every, um, everything else I'm cool with, except for the child porn. Right. Um, but and That's this is and this really is and this, this is what and this is what Sealand and Havenco was for. Yes, the country they created mm -hmm. off was it off the coast of England? It was, was off that? the coast of England. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't. Didn't, didn't I catch that there are like five hundred thousand users and twenty four hundred sellers in this marketplace? I yeah. mean, this is crazy big. Bunker, bunkers in Holland and then Germany. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, helping controversial sites. Um, the Cyber Bunker had house servers for Pirate Bay, WikiLeaks, and a, a range of dark net markets, such as Bulletproof Hosting, um, which we've covered Ooh, in the past. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Parlor? And that's no, probably, clear, I was going to say, if Parlor was where to find a home, uh, oh, sorry, you're too late. They've well, already yeah. taken it down. Yeah. So what was that? Yeah. The, the founder of Pirate Bay was like, yeah, we, we stood stuff up and we stayed up for years and we're still up in Parlor. Yeah. <laughs> is, is Pirate Bay still up and running? Yeah. Where are they hosted now? Some, some country somewhere. Yeah. You, you try they hard enough. They were up and running. Yeah, they they were. Were, yeah. yeah, maybe after this bus, maybe they, well, they, maybe they, they were They've been taken down. I don't know how many times. They've been taken down. Um, I don't know how many times, and they're back up within hours. Yeah, Lee, to your point, uh, the 2009, uh, in 2019, Europol uh, closed another uh, darknet kind of market, Wall Street market, had 11.5 million customer accounts and 5,400 registered sellers. Ooh. It's amazing. Because, yeah. well, the, the point is, I think. Once you get to a certain size, you garner a certain level of attention, mm -hmm. and then you get taken down. And I think if we, as good people, were to think about how we do this, it would be much smaller enclaves that didn't get as large <laughs> as some of these bigger ones that get taken down. Because once you get to that size, I mean, you're going to garner attention. Mm -hmm. You're saying multiple private <laughs> redundant facilities that then scale and 
route through multiple public redundant scalable services. Yeah, but not like Tor. Uh, more like <laughs> maybe some IPv6 dark space somewhere that's hosting smaller mm -hmm. enclaves that are connected together. You know? It's just similar to Tor, right? It is. No, you're right. I, uh, it, it, but yeah. Tor is still traceable. Like People don't realize like yeah. in order, even Bitcoin, Bitcoin wallets and how Bitcoin now functions, Like you have to be able to translate cash into Bitcoin and those are all, you have to give a debit card, a yeah, security but Tyler, number in order to do that. If you can remember your password. Is that story real? <sighs> I thought that story was fake news, to Bo be quite honest. Bo both of them are real. There's, so there's two. There's two stories. There's one uh, British guy that tossed mm -hmm. a hard drive, as he said, uh, as they say in the UK, uh, tossed a hard drive in the tip that's actually worth uh, 210 million dollars. Um, what? what does he mean? Tossed it in the tip? Is he that... threw it in the trash. Oh, okay. Threw it in the trash. It's in the landfill, uh, and he's been trying to get uh, um, the government to let him excavate the landfill to find the hard drive, unsuccessfully. <laughs> yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's the, I mean, it's funny to us. It's certainly not yeah. funny to that gentleman. And, and then there's the, the new guy, which is, uh, ironic. Oh, it, uh, it, I, he works in, I, I think the Bay area or something like that. I think so. Yeah. And, uh, he has his, uh, wallet on an iron key. Yeah. Is that what it is? I was yep. wondering what the, <clears throat> yep. it did sound like an iron key kind of device. Yep. Cause you only get so many passwords. Yep. Before guesses it, before it wipes itself. Yep. Before it wipes itself. And he's got two guesses left. And uh, for the record, um, for this guy, if he's listening, he's probably not. Um, I recently di stumbled across one of my old iron keys. Which, I did too the other which day. Which I couldn't remember the password, so I yeah. immediately took it to the workshop and smashed it with a hammer to see what was inside. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, a, it's like a brick, and the brick is enco encased in epoxy. Mm -hmm. Good yeah. luck. Good luck. Oh, <clears throat> so there's physical... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, oh, yeah. that was the deal. That was the deal. It's, like, it's, it's not a, like something you can take to iron key... And say, can you recover this for me? Like, it, no, no, no deal. That's like Apple. It's like going to Apple. They just laugh at you. Yeah, pretty much. You got to take much. it to some Israeli company, and the, they can crack it for yeah, you. Yeah. Well, the, and even <laughs> and even the hardware, you got to get the top. You got to get the metal casing off, which wasn't too bad. You mm -hmm. smashed it with a hammer on the anvil. Uh, but then inside was a bunch of. It was literally a quarter inch thick epoxy. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then you got to get that away. And good you luck. You get your heat gun out, but your heat gun could melt some of the circuitry. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. And epoxy and heat gun don't work all that well together. Interesting. Sounds like you're speaking <clears throat> from experience. <laughs> I love how you're like epoxy and a heat gun don't they, they yep. don't melt. Nope. <laughs> yep. I mean, it's possible. It is. Ad admittedly, the right distance with the right temperature. <clears throat> even still. Admittedly, this guy that has the iron key. Um. If is what is on there is worth what he says it is, it would be in his best interest to pay experts to take care of this. Agreed. Because I, oh yeah, it would, pro uh, you know, if you want someone to do a good job, split it with your fifty-fifty. Yep. Oh, fifty-fifty. Like you could probably get into this. You know, if he could go into it, you know, kind of secretive about what was on it. Mm -hmm. You get this, so I can get the data off. Um, you know, there, there's, you know, $500,000 million in it for you. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a very reasonable price to pay for that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Those iron keys are great. Lee speaking from experience there, I think too, because they probably, absolutely you, you probably required them in some of your work. Yes. <laughs> Somebody smart we, enough to get into that. They're going to get into it, figure out what's there yeah. and realize $500,000 is jump change. Yep. And right. But then again, they, yeah. they, then they need to know the uh, password to the Bitcoin wallet. True. That's there. 
there's some safeguards there. So right? yeah. So he's he's figuring out the password to the encryption for the USB thumb drive that it's stored on, and then they need yeah. the password to the Bitcoin wallet. Password one. <laughs> Could be. Exclamation point. Now you got one more guess. <laughs> if that was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so what about uh, John picking the next story? Oh, oh, John's getting put on the spot now. There's a lot of stories there. It, he can't go wrong. Scroll and point. Yeah, it's like throwing the digital dart. Pick one of mine. Pick one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although I keep going back to Paul's 13. So It is, you know, uh, Jeff, you're, you're, I believe, of all the hosts right now, closest to this area. Uh, so maybe we'll turn uh, to so, you. So let's do that story while yeah. John picks the yeah. next one. How's so that? Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, well, the reason I, a lot of reasons why I added the story. One is I think in our security awareness programs, we tend to have some incentives mm -hmm. for people to do the right thing or hey. reward people who spotted the yeah. phishing mm -hmm. attacks. Or I'll give you a candy bar for your password. Yeah, or that. Yep. And so this story is uh, get a free bag of marijuana with your COVID-19 vaccine. Meanwhile, and meanwhile, Paul's been vaccinated 318 times. <laughs> <laughs> all, all in, in. But this is in the Washington, D.C. area, which is interesting. There was a, like a, a Viceland show that was, uh, I forget even the name of the show, but they were talking about the legalization of marijuana and how it plays out. It was a pharmacopoeia or some similar kind of show that was like, in D.C., the laws are very specific and actually kind of weird. Like, you can't smoke it in public, but you and you can't sell marijuana, but you can give marijuana to anyone else up to a certain amount. I think in D.C., it's an ounce or two ounces or something like that. Um, and so the that's one of the reasons why this is technically legal uh, in Washington, D.C., what's interesting is uh, a lot of things. One, they're literally calling it joints for jabs. <laughs> Except they're not <laughs> distributing joints because apparently they did that at the 2016 inauguration and realized that two things they did were really bad. Well, no, two things that then was fine, but now is not. Yes. Well, one was fine. Wait, uh, wait, wait. I think we have a new question for in the classic game of joints for jabs. Right? <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. What's legal and what's not, right? Like testing your marijuana uh, law knowledge. But they uh, so they gave out joints to the 2016 presidential inauguration. Um, they wanted to do that this I was, year. I was they were like, say, Wait. do you prefer to stick it or suck it? Well, go ahead. <laughs> so they're like, this is bad. And that was inappropriate, <laughs> by the way. But they're like, this is bad because number He's one. Learning. He's it, learning. I'm learning. In 2016, we licked we licked all the joints. And, and now in 2020 and 2021. Well, like that, that was inappropriate, too. Can't do that. Yep. And that was also inappropriate. Uh, but number two, if we handed out fully rolled joints, people just like started smoking them immediately, which under Washington D.C. law you can't be smoking it in public. You can give it to each other, but you gotta like you know be in the privacy of your own home to, to smoke it. So like this year, we're just gonna give you little baggies of marijuana if you go and get your vaccine. And uh, and again, the analogy into security is like, oh, spot a phishing attack. Do we? No, do we give you a bag of marijuana? Yeah, give you like, a bag of marijuana for your password. <laughs> or the other way, right? Yeah. I just thought that was so. So what I'm hearing you say, Paul, is that when it comes time for me to get my vaccine, I you really want me to go get it in D.C. and pick you up something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Then you have to get it to oh. me, which crosses state lines, which is a whole other set of laws that we'd have just, to potentially just mail it. <laughs> just mail well, it. You, it's fine. You've you've been meaning to come visit me. I so. would have to come visit you. Yes, then it would be legal as long as I didn't smoke it in public. I think and the, transport it back home across state lines. Right. I think those are the law. Don't again. Go I have not a lawyer. We've got yeah. A, yeah, but Jeff's got a man cave. He's kind of virtually in it right now, so you'd be good. Well, also in the article, I, it, it goes into a lot of details about the, what is the, there's a bill in front of Congress to legalize marijuana at the federal level. Is it the Moore, Moore Act? There's a name for it. They also show uh, activists in D.C. in uh, fairly recently, and they're holding up like this giant inflatable joint. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's uh, it just, it, it's a very interesting read and wildly entertaining. Heavily, heavily uh, um, lobbied by the uh, the snack food industry, I, I, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the cereal industry, yeah. specifically Captain Crunch. John, the, to your point, and there was White um, Castle. Come on, there was a it, there was a um, a snack. I forget, I forget the name of it. It was some play on a you know marijuana related kind of euphemism. Um, uh, it, right in our town, uh, the town where I live. Uh, in Rhode Island, and they were open from like you know like seven p.m. to like three a.m. And before COVID, you could call them up and they would deliver you snacks. And they had like funyuns and you know popcorn and chips and all kinds of stuff like that. Like it was totally catered to the pot smokers. It didn't last very long, but it was you know entertaining. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and, and well, that's also when. Uh, uh, you could hire an Uber or, or at a Lyft to go buy you alcohol. You could also get them to buy munchies, right, for you. Yeah, this was before Uber and in, in, uh, in Lyft too. John, yeah. save us. Pick an article. Yeah, because clearly let's talk more we... about the solar leaks. Solar right, leaks. Oh the yeah, number six. Under Lee. Yeah. Lee's number six. Lee's number six for the win. Yes. That was so, a nice, that was a, that sounds like a nice truck there. Tyler. Lee's number five. Sorry, Lee's number five. Solar Leak site claims to sell data <laughs> stolen in right. the Solar Winds attacks. Right. They were claiming they were selling stuff in the Solar Weeks attacks. The domain was registered. I forgot what the group was called, but the acronym is tied to like Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear. Um, when it was first came to light, they'd been registered for an entire twenty-four hours. So therefore, I was completely partial to site. Huggy Bear. That's yeah. something completely different. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Boy, that is a reference from a ways back there, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please, you're probably the only one that gets it. That's yes. all, that's okay. I don't. I don't. That's I don't. okay. I I, I, I I'm appreciating it. And um, you know, and Cisco's saying now nah, they didn't have any of our stuff, but I saw somewhere else they were selling some stuff out there. If, you know, five six hundred thousand dollars for the data they had out there, which is Pretty gutsy if it's not actual, real data, um, and of course yeah. it got taken down. Yeah, it, but it, yeah, and it comes down to like who you trust. So, Cisco, as an example, or any company, can't say, "Well, we, we weren't part of the you know the Solar Winds, uh, you know, sunburst attack or whatever you, you know you want to call it." And then, if someone does have the data, and they say, "No, you were part of it," but then like, who's lying, right? And it's. Yeah, right. God. But just because be... they have the data doesn't mean they got it through the solar winds attack. Agreed, John. Agree. Right. 
agree. Yes. Mm. Comes down to that issue of trust. Uh, speaking yeah, of Cisco, well, so before you end uh, on that one, mm. um, you're reading the end of Lee's article. I think this is this is amazing. Scamming the scammers, and uh, so that was at what SolarLeaks.com or SolarLeak.com. Uh, there's a copycat site at SolarLeak.net with the same website conference but a different Monero address. <laughs> <laughs> like, just like scam on top of scam, like uh, what are those little dolls where, like you, you know, you open it up, it's the a mat- little doll, the matrisha, inside, matrisha yeah, dolls, yeah, yeah, inside the little, yeah, it's just yeah, scam inside a scam. Sorry, I had, I had to. All right, Paul. So, sorry, I was just so going to register solarleaks.bogus, right? Solarleaks.security, solarleaks.info. Yeah. Uh, my story number two: <laughs> seventy vulnerabilities will remain unpatched in end-of-life Cisco routers. Now, this sounded really bad when I read the headline. I was like. Cisco's irresponsible. I hate it when they do this. It comes back to our research that we talked about at the top of this segment with the WT54G. We should fix everything. If it's end of life and you're not going to fix it, it's irresponsible. And then I read it and it's like, well, you know, security bugs exist because basically the web management interface uh, has vulnerabilities that it's standard boilerplate vulnerability description allowing an attacker to send a crafted HTTP requests could allow unauthenticated access and remote code execution, blah, 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 blah. But then it says an attacker able to successfully exploit these vulnerabilities would be able to execute arbitrary code with root privileges. And it sounds really bad. But then it says a mitigating factor is that a valid administrator credentials are required for exploitation. I'm like, wait, hold on. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Hold the phone. Why do I need an exploit to the HTTP server when... I already have the admin credentials. Like, I can just go change the configuration on your switches. What do we need an exploit for? Like, that's... Well, maybe John can explain it. He has background in uh, Wi-Fi. I mean, you know. (laughs) This is in the small business line of uh, Cisco gear, which I... I don't know if I used the ones that were mentioned here, uh, but I used some of that at my house. And it does have a really crappy web interface. Right. Like, they wanted to say, like, oh, in the enterprise gear, like, it's so crappy because we know no one's going to use it, but we have to put it there just to, uh, so marketing can put it on the website that you can manage it via the web. Um, Mm -hmm. But on the small business gear, they're like, well, we need to do a little better because people might actually use it because they haven't, you know, gotten a Cisco certification because it's a smaller business and it's just riddled with vulnerabilities. I mean, we've covered a lot of them, uh, you know, in in this Cisco gear, but this is just ridiculous i mean cisco's making themselves look bad for no reason like they should just come out and say like these are not like critical vulnerabilities because you need admin privileges you just come out and say i respect you if you just came out and said it right like i don't know but this is not an article from cisco either so i i don't fault cisco i don't think you should pat it it kind of takes me to maybe you shouldn't patch these vulnerabilities if they require administrator pri- privileges. I mean, they're being kind of nice and telling you that they're there, but they should also tell you that it doesn't matter, right? Like, just set some good passwords, turn off the the web interface or, or whatever, and make some recommendations. So I, I look at this similarly but different, where I see this as there's historically been a case where small businesses buy a router like this. They set it up, they get it working, and they never touch it again. They don't update it or nothing. And I, and and that's not a good model either. You can't if there these aren't set and forget devices. Uh, you've got to do something. But you're right. If you had guidance on what to disable and stuff, it'd be cool. But I still don't think you can leave it forever. You have to update it. 
have to I, look at it. I agree. I think some of the responsibility is educating your user base that you do need to do some updating and some due diligence. But is this the way to do it? Well, I also, I, you know, sure. I mean, Joff, I mean, right? It's a lot of work to understand all the commands that enter into a Cisco router. And I think they're trying to make it easy for their customers with, with a web interface. And if the advice yeah. is disable it now, I mean, many of us, well, not just Joff, know like what a pain in the butt it is to remember what those Cisco commands are to, you know, make a VLAN or a port channel or if you don't do it every day, right? Yeah, you've got to be. Or doing if you it had the day, hard client. thing. But I mean, the smart install stuff that's been a while around for a while, you know, has has vulnerabilities in it, and yep. um, it's uh, uh, you know, we we get a lot of traction out of that on internal network pen tests these days, mm -hmm. right? So, it, it, you know, it's it's a real issue. Uh, you exploit it. The the Cisco box, whether it's a router switch or whatever, sends TFTP's packets configuration to you. It's like, oh, right. thanks. Do they uh, respond to broadcast packets too to get that stuff set up? Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not broadcast. Um, this one's a unicast packet, but it doesn't matter. You send mm. you send the packet and say, hey, give me your TFTP, and it's like, okay, here it is. Um, you know, it's that's not good, obviously. And uh, you know, once you you know, cracking a uh, Cisco uh, password within a configuration is usually not too tri uh, trivial. Um, mm. Really, it's it's not too difficult. Sorry, is the word I was looking for. Um, and then, of course, you're off to the races because everybody uses the same passwords across the entire network infrastructure. And yeah, when you've got people by the network balls, well, yeah, life's not going to be good, right? Yeah. It's I like, mean, yeah, I think are... I'll shut down your skater VLAN. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. There's yeah, a lot of interesting attacks on networking and iot gear and you know what's interesting is you know my story number five right like understanding tcp ip stack vulnerabilities in the iot and uh, john you know you talked about ubiquity vulnerabilities we're talking about vulnerabilities in some cisco gear and in many different levels and very you know rude i mean vulnerabilities that are, are really easy to exploit i would argue that uh, TCP IP stack vulnerabilities are a little, you know, a little hard. You're going to find an exploit and, in you know, maybe do some buffer overflows, of course. Uh, in that, there's a few out there documented in this article and ones we've talked about in the past. There are very same ones documented in this article. What I found interesting was in this article, they're like, well, there's three foundational steps for dealing with TCP IP stack vulnerabilities. One, identifying all the devices on a network to understand which are vulnerable, assessing the risk introduced by these devices, which include their business context, criticality, and internet exposure, and then mitigating the assessed risks. Like, oh, that's all we need to do. Like, oh, like we should just do Sick. that. And everything would be great, except that's like really hard and like why there's a whole industry built around cybersecurity and folks like us well, and people ow. listening that work tirelessly every day to basically accomplish all those things that you just listed there i just that was just that set me off all right i'm off my soapbox now that, was, that grinds my gears right i like your number 12 Number 12. So you don't want to go into my number five. All right, we'll switch to number 12. Criminals are bypassing MFA to access organization's cloud services. So many ways to bypass MFA. I don't know that yeah. I can disclose all the ones that I've learned about recently because they were kind of off back channel and not necessarily released. Uh, so let's talk about what's public, Tyler, because oh. I, I got to... <laughs> 
I can't talk. I, I think some of it, some of it plays into our, our first uh, our first kind of interview around the email, right? Like when we start talking about applications and what we allow our applications to access, mm. uh, and you know the Mac Outlook client was a great example where we've got multi-factor, we've got all this protection set up, but we have these applications that are not you know up to date or not smart enough to receive that, or they authenticate and it's uh, set and forget, and so you end up getting past or bypassing your MFA and the applications have app access, right? So there's that. So you have the Tom, ability. I want to ask, ask you a question about that. So I use software on Linux, which I think is available on all three major platforms. It's called Heary, specific to Microsoft Office 365. Not a very well-known software package. But again, I'm on Linux, so I'm like uh, I'm exploring right? my, my options because the browser... O365 email, I'm like, ah, I can't, I can't do it. Um, and it will prompt me for my second factor. It, it, when it authenticates, it's like enter your password. And then it's like, oh, you haven't logged in, in a while or this is a new client. And it will prompt me for my, for my second factor. But, you know, so one of our previous conversations, like if I disable Pop or IMAP or both for my account, then my email client stops working. And I'm like, crap, I have to re-enable that. And I'm like, uh, I just... but the settings for this are not, this is not a cut and dry zero or one kind of thing. Like there's a lot of options to configure what applications can authenticate, how they authenticate, and whether or not they honor the second factor, I feel like is a a, a study. Like you need a doctorate in Microsoft uh, Active Directory to answer these questions definitively no it is yeah. really hard and the scripts and commandlets in which to do it and then being able to dissect and analyze the permissions and what those permissions mean uh, i mean is why trimark has yeah, a very yeah, successful right, yeah. business at what they do um but yeah the the way in it which applications actually authenticate how long those tokens or cookies last yep and then the application's ability to use those moving forward and, and the security mechanism in which they've coded that into really depends, is different from application to application. Yeah. I pay, and there's I pay not a lot of granular control over that. I drive our MSP nuts because I pay attention to that because I'm like, nice. anytime I authenticate with any application, if you're not asking me for my second factor, I'm like, I'm filing a ticket, right? And they're like, oh, God, here's Paul again. And I'm like, here's this Paul. should ask me for my second factor. If it doesn't, there's some configuration that control has fallen <clears throat> off in the forest or was never enabled <laughs> in the first place. But I'm like, anytime I authenticate with anything, and it seems like there's a half a dozen or more ways for applications to authenticate to Microsoft Office 365, it, this is kind of the crux of the issue when we come to MFA, right? It well, really is, and that's just one way to bypass it, right? And this is this is where you really start to run into. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways to bypass it between, you know, spoofing a, an MFA page, pushing a bunch of push requests, having the user approve those, you know, making a legitimate domain in Azure with a subdomain, and you know, call it single sign-on company name .com. Yeah, someone's going to see that, pop it up, put in their factor. We're going to proxy that on, steal the cookie. And then have them re-enter their things and then authenticate on the second try. They're not going to be the wiser. They're not going to file a ticket because they got access and they thought it was just a glitch. So there's a bunch of ways to, to do this. But one of the big things that people are not thinking about and one of the, the real scary parts of this is what your browser holds from a cookie standpoint. Once you authenticate, 
the pass the cookie attack uh, is is simply that you're able to take a cookie from the browser uh, via a, a, a dappy and utilize mm. that you can decrypt it it's in chrome uh, mimi cats has the ability to decrypt those cookies uh, because it's encrypted in, on microsoft with the user uh, user token and um, something with inside of chrome that then makes a dappy does that uh, go so to applications use- applications too like on linux i've got my email client i've got teams and I've got mm-hmm. my browser, all of which I'm authenticating yes. in some capacity to Microsoft Office 365 is how I'll say it because it's <laughs> even the naming is confusing. Which, which acronym is it today? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so, but all of those have, is it all cookie? Does it like the browser has cookies, but do my other applications, are, are yes, they cookies they do. or like, how, is it a cookie? Yes. That's, it's called modern it's authentication. An, it's an Azure set cookie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether it's and, a browser or not, basically. Right. So, and here's the deal: the authentication cookie lifetime, by default, is 14 days. Mm-hmm. Changing yep. it to a shorter duration is not duration; is an unsupported feature. But yeah, you you don't I, have the ability to do that without some crazy. Really? You can, but it 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 don't. It breaks shit. <laughs> but really? what you can like, do is they I'd have a thing okay, called like additional access every, that will help you. If every day when I wake up, I had to put my password and my second factor in, and now I was good for that day, then. I go to sleep, wake up the next morning, I had to do it again. Uh, for me, yeah. obviously not for every user, but for me, I'm like, that's cool. That's cool. But you can't do that. Or you can, well, but it breaks you shit. You can, but there's some serious side effects that, you know, I can, that we learned the hard way mm. that you don't want to do that. Because we tried that and it, we, thought, we thought it would be awesome. Office didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing you can do is you can implement what's called conditional access, which means yes. as you have different different authentication profiles and responses not only by hosts but also by ip address so for example if i steal tyler's token and try it on my machine over here it won't work because i'm not on the right ip anymore if i steal it and still do it from his machine it's okay and that's not just his token that's even trying to log in um, yeah I mean, well, and lee what you're talking about is different levels of security right that right i think it's, microsoft customers should be able to decide right like maybe yeah. for your organization me having 14 days trusted access for my devices is cool. I like that if the profile of that device changes, my IP changes, my yeah. machine changes, my software operating system version changes, they go, oh, wait a minute. I don't trust yeah. that because you're coming from a different IP, from a different OS, from a different version of the software. Like you got to, we've talked about this, right? This is beyond corp or whatever Google's yeah. thing was. This is part of zero trust. This is a, a cool yeah. concept, right? That nope, right. you've you've changed your behavior uh, across the threshold, which we should be able to define as the uh, you know implementer mm-hmm. of the software. That now you have to enter your password and your second factor, or depending on how drastic has changed, maybe I don't have to enter my password again. Maybe I just have to give my two factor to go. Yeah, you're still. Yeah. I think you're still yeah. Paul using that machine. You know that's cool, but it sounds like the granular controls aren't quite there yet. Well, well, they're there. They're just yeah. not implemented by default. Yeah. Conditional access right. is by default not turned on, and it's only supported for certain levels of uh, tiers of O365. And so you have to get your subscription-based uh, set up properly. So you can get mm-hmm. as granular as accessing it from this machine as this user with this uh, supported software version uh, at this time from this IP address. 
or any combination of those, and those policies can be pushed down to different devices. That no, can no, be from wait. your phone, that can be from your laptop. Tyler, I have a question there. Are these <clears throat> policies set at the server or service level? In, in Yes. It, not yes. on the device level? Nope. Right. Nope. These are all at the service level. These okay. are your access into O365. Right. Uh, this is your authentication into O365 or Azure. Right. And you can set different policies for, say, getting at the portal and web apps than the thick desktop apps as well. Yep. Yep. Um, and you can do things like you can say you can only log into these services, say the mobile apps can only come in from a specific set of IPs, which are only available if the mobile has got some sort of VPN going. So you can't just generally log in there. There's there's some things, and but from a work like Tyler says, they're not on by default, and you've got to go find out about them. Yep, which is what we're running into, right? Like the, the whole story is around uh, we're starting to see a bunch of multi-factor authentication sessions um, being bypassed because mm -hmm. tokens are being stolen. Like there's a ton of tooling that we're always doing as we're you know exploiting boxes or even part of like ransomware or uh, watering hole drive-by JavaScript. All of these things are usually coming in through the browser. So if we just exploit the browser and pull data out of the browser – uh, that gives us the ability to then do a lot more nefarious things and bypass a lot of the controls that we'd be going after anyway. We talked about in the last segment how if we just got access to single sign-on or email, that provides us a ton of access to corporate secrets, IPs, uh, potential access to you know, an infinite number of things that we don't even have to touch the corporate network where there's a ton of visibility and uh, and possibility of detection. We can simply sit in the single sign-on or SaaS applications and live there as much as we want. And we can do that through things like pass the pass the cookie attacks where we're yeah. just stealing the cookie and decrypting those. Love it. Uh, so the, I did, Joff, cool? Joff, Joff looks like he's falling asleep, so I wanted to change gears for a second and engage Joff. Because <laughs> my story number one, I want to I want to try and engage Joff on this one and pick your brain. So I found this interesting, Joff, and I think you'll especially find this interesting, is that um, there were four zero days used to infect Windows and Android devices. The headline is not all that interesting when you dig into some of google's description of this vulnerability it starts to get really nerdy and really interesting in my opinion and one of them i just like picked the first one i'm like well, what's that one all about and then it started getting awesome and it says one of the features that makes javascript code especially difficult to optimize is the dynamic type system python also being dynamically typed in other similar languages yeah, yeah. would all suffer from this, right? And they said, so even for a trivial expression like A plus B, the engine has to support a multitude of cases depending on whether the parameters are numbers, strings, booleans, objects. Like I had never con you know, considered this in a dynamic type language. When I'm doing an operation, I'm expecting the compiler to just know what types I'm using it turns out it's smart about that, right? Because JIT compilation wouldn't make much sense if the compiler had to admit machine code that would handle every possible combination. Like, am I adding no. numbers? Am I adding strings? Is it a Boolean? Like, the compiler has to do very different things depending on the type. Since it doesn't know the type because I haven't declared it, it has to be smart about it. And smart hackers figure out a way to turn this into a vulnerability, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, so it, uh, the Chrome's JavaScript V8 engine tries to overcome this limitation through type speculation. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so turned on right now by the nerdiness what? in this article. It's awesome. 
Okay, and it looks like Lee's kind of brain hurts. Yes. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm sitting yeah, back thinking kind of strongly nuts, right? type speculation. What? Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> we wonder why there's vulnerabilities when there's phrases in here that are using type speculation. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about the errors the C compiler used to spit about spit out about implicit type, you know, typecasting and stuff where it was trying to guess what you're doing, but usually it was saying I'm gonna get it wrong. Here it's just freaking working. My brain is exploding. It's like, yeah, that is really cool, but yeah, damn, but right, like in C, it it knows it's an integer, and even the type of integer because I've defined it as such, and so then right. it knows what machine code to generate and things like right. JavaScript. And I'm assuming Java Python, right? It, it has to make some decisions about. Well, I guess in, in oh, yeah. Python, when it goes to when it, if it has to compile it down into bytecode, it would make those decisions, right? Yeah, well, it has to, right? It's going to look at the object on the right-hand side of the assignment, mm. and it's going to say, well, this thing looks like an integer, and so I'm going to allocate, you know, 64 bits, uh, you know, minus one for two's complement, positive and negative, assuming a 64-bit interpreter, and so that's going to be the representation. Um, it To exploit that yeah, is right? kind of fascinating, uh, yeah. because to say, well... I, I just kind of want to know how, right? right. Yeah. If you follow, the, yeah, if you follow the link in the article, it does explain how. Like we, we don't have the time on this show to like go into all the how, but like to take this concept and extrapolate that into a vulnerability, someone spent a ton of time, and well, the attackers in this this case weren't after a bug bounty, right? Like they were after a payoff for some some other reason, right? Nation state attack, or they were selling them the the black market, whatever the case may be, right? It was very purposeful and, it, do, and do very you know, smart. It, it, is the assertion that they were able to craft uh, data types that actually had machine code opcodes in the resulting data type as part of the exploitation? Because that would make sense to me. That's kind of where this would go. This was the what was called the Chrome Infinity Bug. And so they started getting into integers that, that were defined under a certain parameter and got into like a whole bunch of JavaScript code that uh, I admittedly did not understand the syntax and would have had to done research to understand the syntax and then go back and understand the article. Okay. Um, but uh, Google Project Zero um, this month, January 2021, did did post the, uh, and this is probably, this post in particular is gotta be six, seven pages long of description and, and code snippets to understand yeah. how they exploit it. And I was like, I'm really impressed. Like that's, that's freaking cool. Yeah. The fact that they're trying to do forward prediction is, is that if that's part of the element that, that got exploited as well, that actually opens up a really interesting, um, set of possibilities, right? That this thing will go on and on and on because you've got to think that the, the data typing prediction algorithms are going to have some variance in them. Um, so, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, dude, I mean, it, this article, uh, so if you, you dig into the Google Project Zero, I mean, so like if one of the operands to the addition operator is a string, the output is guaranteed to be a string as well, right? So this is some of the predictions you can make, right? One of the operands is a string. I know I'm comparing strings. And therefore, I can make those predictions and produce the appropriate bytecode for that. But math.random always returns a number. 
So then I can assume that if it's a number that there are going to be two numbers, the compiler puts runtime checks for speculated types that trigger de-optimization, i.e. revert the execution in the interpreter and update the type feedback in case of one. I mean, it just goes on and on like every sentence you really have to kind of stop and interpret and think and then kind of read on in this entire article. One of the most amazing articles and descriptions, um, I, you know, I think of, of, of how that's uh, executed and I think when we say you know there's a a zero day exploit in the JavaScript interpreters that are embedded inside of a browser, it's going to these levels where you've got to have a really solid handle on computer science and programming languages to really understand the description of the vulnerability. Let it be smart enough to be one of the folks that have actually discovered the the flaw that led you to code execution. You know, for this, I'm just it's impressive. Yeah. Nice. So uh next uh if we do next story, uh yeah. John pinged me one on one uh yes. so that isn't in the show notes. Oh, there you like, go, John. Oh, Thanks, John. Damn, throw down, boy. <laughs> go Come ahead, on. John. <laughs> Bring it. Come on. So last week it was uh I think last Monday, is that the fifth? Um Skelsec posted and they've implemented the SMB protocol via WebAssembly. So um, basically that anything you can do via SMB can now be done via any type of, you know, malicious link or whatever, if you visit an attacker's page or, or whatever. So, um, there's, you know, integrates impact and Python and all those kinds of things. So the, the, the flexibility and the capability there is, that's, that's a lot compared to what we had before in terms of attacking a browser and then pivoting internally afterwards. So John, what does that really mean? Like uh, we can yeah. Mouse. How is uh, John? So how how is WebAssembly interpreted in the browser? Right. I mean, we just talk about how JavaScript is interpreted in the browser, and I think the complexity that's in there speaks to why we need the fastest processors on the market to run our machines just to run Chrome, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and but WebAssembly is yet a different interpreter that's in the browser that's not JavaScript, right? Yeah, and, and I don't know all the details of that, but it does go to lower level processing. So it's a, a faster uh, way to run code than mm -hmm. using JavaScript, right? That's why, like, we all complain about Chrome taking over our memory and, and yeah, because JavaScript's all the, interpreted interpretation, and, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, so a lot more efficient. The browser has a lot of a lot of options too for things like WebSockets and the way that we would leverage something like the Outlook attack and the ability to pivot from something like the browser persistence with a triggered execution that then can pivot into an internal network and be interpreted. That that's highly useful from an attacker standpoint. Maybe we just need to go back to Flash in the browser. Oh wait. Never mind. <laughs> That's not an option. I and I did have a question on this. So Adobe fixes seven critical flaws. Also in this update they are they say they block flash player content. And I did a little bit of research and they all basically said the same high level thing. Like basically Adobe's no longer supporting flash player as of December thirty first, twenty twenty. And Adobe will block flash content from running in Flash Player beginning January 12th, which Ooh. was two days ago, they recommend that all users immediately uninstall the Flash player to help protect their systems because they won't be pushing out updates. My question is, if they're not pushing out updates, how are they blocking Flash content? Does that mean your Flash plugin 
before it loads content is checking in with Adobe and go like, hey, should I load Flash content? Like, I don't understand how they're blocking Flash. Like, if you've yeah. got a Flash it's got plugin, a kill shit switch in it. it, it won't execute after a certain date. Oh, and so they in at a certain time they rolled out an update, Lee, that said after yeah. a certain date, I'm not going to render Flash content. Right. It was embedded in you. one of the updates last summer, so it's been there for a while. Oh, and, and this is and, and, okay. And Thank this, you, Lee. That was yeah. I was and, confused. And uh, I'd like to provide you know give some empirical data and mm. you know, that type of stuff. So you know, open the skeleton. You know, open the closet and find a whole bunch of skeletons in there. Um, wife got a new laptop for Christmas mm -hmm. because her old one was old. <laughs> uh, Happens and, with our spouses, yep. right? Yeah. Well, yeah, and you know, you know, security people, you know, like how where is the kids? Well, the I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, they spoil us in so many different ways, but we spoil them. <clears throat> being yep. in the roles that we're in, we're like. We give them technology that just works. When it breaks, we fix it. When it needs to be mm -hmm. updated, we update it for yep. them. Like, they don't have to. My wife's but, like, like, if you ever, like, the whole, like, got hit by a bus thing, she's like, I have no, no idea like, what to but, do. Like, like we, every, everybody in the family this year got new stuff. Like, right. But yep. what's funny is that's not just a gift to them. It's a gift to you because it's easier to maintain yep. new well, stuff. But, let's let's stuff. put it this way. Do you know how many times I was... I, yeah. I heard in a day that I had to reboot my laptop because it would not join the Wi-Fi network oh, anymore. Oh, I know. Yeah. Like, because there was something wrong with it and I couldn't figure it it's out. It's a gift for and everyone. Newer technology yep. is a gift for everyone. And Agreed. I asked and yeah. I asked today, she, I said, How, did it get dumped off the network? She said, no, it's been like Christmas since I've got dumped off the network. It's great. Uh, and the problem is, is that she has played this game, a Facebook game, mm -hmm. for years. And I mean years. We're talking 10 years. It's like, it's not Farmville. It's like farm town. I can't mm, even keep track. Right. Like I've never taken an interest in it, and it's flash based. Mm -hmm. And wow, we I migrated her to Chrome from Edge or mm -hmm. Internet Explorer on her new machine, and or, or Firefox. Regardless, it was, she's on yeah. Chrome now, and she tried to go to load the game, and she's like, "Fix it." Yeah, I'm like, doesn't work. I'm like, well. Work uh, your magic. Uh, I'm work like, your magic. I'm like, all right, maybe it's time to find a new game. She says, I've been playing this for 10 years. I have like 1 billion, I have 1 trillion coins. Like, I'm winning. I'm like, oh, uh, all right. And like, we could, we could like go around things and enable flash plugins. And she played the game today. And it's past the 12th. And it's still based in flash. Mm. So, like, did oh it really, boy. did it really die? I got this Windows XP but VM in my lab, sweetie. But, Can you play your game yeah. on that? But did you die? <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Just about to say, you're going to have to dockerize that or VM VM app that and make it revert snapshots all but, the time. Right. But, yeah, th but, there's got to be an archive of old Flash players out there. Like, but, there's going there's yeah. totally going to be a black market for Flash players for but like the sad three percent yeah. of Flash applications. The sad, the sad part is, is that there are still hundreds of thousands of people that play this game. Mm-hmm. Oh and, and clearly there's some monetization there because they don't give that shit away for free. Yep. And are they going to migrate? And like, what, what's the deal? Like as, as of, as of today, she still played it to the best of my knowledge. She, well, I haven't gotten a text that she can't play said game. Um, because that's probably what she's doing right about now while I'm at podcast. Um, well, you know there's people out there Googling, like, my porn site doesn't work anymore because it was Flash, and mm -hmm. where do I get a Flash-supported browser somewhere or whatever, right? But, like, but like this, this is literally a machine that we bought right before Christmas. Uh, she got it for Christmas. We set it up, mm -hmm. you know, two days after Christmas because the kid stuff came first because she's like that. And, like, 
it's working. But it, it took us a couple of hoops to jump through to get it to render Flash content, and Flash content is still rendering. Mm. Even after my understanding was that that shit was going to go away. But I'm like, but yes, this game is going to go away. Like, I get hours back of her but, life. But to your <laughs> point, Larry, there's, you know, I think a lot of folks that won't upgrade because their Flash is working and they're savvy enough or have access to savvy enough people to go, that's not going to work if you upgrade. So in a, some sense, this could take us a step back where people don't want to upgrade because stuff's going to stop working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, for for me, it was uh, it was one of those things like, oh hey, maybe it would be a good idea if you didn't play that. Like, Find a new for, game for, for many years. Animal, it was is it Animal Farm? What's the newest one? There's a whole science behind these games to get you addicted to oh, like, yeah. um, but, but it, you know, it's like Sim City, but yeah. then there was Farmville, then there was yep. Animal. It, it, farm, it, it, animal it was it was either it is, Farmville yeah. or Farmtown. Yeah, and it was one of those two, and I can't remember the which, but th- those were the addictive. It was like The Sims. Well, it was, I was listening to Twit, and they were talking about the addictive nature of these games, right? The I have to um, build and maintain my farm, yep. and then like if I don't play the game, like stuff dies and people in the the virtual characters in my town get really mad because there's you know rotting crops and yep. dead animals everywhere and people are really mad at me and they 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 say that there's like this it's like a drug addiction right yeah they say there's this like ramp up where it's really fun and i get a lot of enjoyment out of it and then i, I keep playing and then at a certain point there's kind of this taper off where like I still feel like I have to play. I'm not playing because it makes me happy. I'm playing because I still have to play. Uh, because to, if I don't, my, my virtual things that I spend yeah, all this time will and die. I, f- I feel bad if I don't play. Like it's a it's a really messed up kind of thing. Yep. For her, Let's you know, California. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and I think for her, it's very much the uh, you know uh, I she got to that plateau where it was like if I don't play, they're gonna die. Yes. And then now it's like, well, I've played for so long. I'm not playing because I want to. I'm playing because I have to. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. playing because I have to. And it's not like she spends any more. It's not like she spends, you know, a whole ton of time, like, strategizing about the things that she needs to do, like World of Warcraft or yeah, that type like of stuff. Yeah, it's stuff I do. It's, to, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Like, it's like stuff that I do. It's like stuff that she it's does like to, like, bo- like, this is mindless now. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, as we all know, everyone being home and, you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff, you just, like, I need to just go you chill do, out for a while. You can do something mindless. Agreed. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, you know, like, like for adult, me, it's looking at memes, right? Like, like, adult, I'm a, like yeah. adult coloring books. Like that's something minus you go and yes. do to relax, and that's yep. the thing that she does to relax. And I get it, mm-hmm. but it's flash based and it still works. Crazy. Um. So there was an my article number eight. I thought was really interesting. So it's how I fund a buck in YouTube that let me watch private videos I wasn't allowed to. Um. A computer science student found this bug, and it was really interesting because it speaks to the silent movie thing, like. They figured out that there was this service that allowed, again, it's this kind of like third-party access into YouTube that's like, well, uh, you need to be able to watch this video and uh, take a certain screenshot or uh, look at a thumbnail at a certain point to see some kind of certain thing. I forget the use case. And this person figured out that uh, with a Python script, they could basically take a video ID of a private video uh, find a loophole in the API that if they iterated over it could take screenshots 
in such succession that they could save all of the screenshots and reconstruct the video, albeit in poor quality and albeit without audio, but be able to reconstruct the private uh, video, even though it was not meant to be public. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's the hacker spirit right there. Like, right? there's some weird things I've done to get access to private videos before, and that was well past any level of effort I probably would have put in. Although I've put in some effort to other things and other craft, but man, that was uh, that was quite the dedication. So much you give that guy a job. Right, I agree. I like the hacker spirit. Uh, my story number eleven: minimizing cyber attacks by managing the life cycle of non-human workers. You know, it's important to manage the life cycle of alien workers from outer space, not just humans. I didn't I didn't get the title. Of this <laughs> it, but what the article was talking about was bots and service accounts and things like that. But like the, the title, I was like being a fan of science fiction, like you lost me right at the title, like non-human workers. Yeah, Does that, that mean that aliens? squirrel was, was running? It was, I, yeah, I did. And, and I feel bad that it, it lost because service accounts are important uh, as we talk about Active Directory, of course, right? Anything. Oh yeah, well, we've we were talking with an insurance com like we've been talking with several insurance companies recently, and uh, one of the major themes that that we've seen and and having responded to a bunch of breaches is service account abuse. Like regardless of what abuse it is and and what ransomware it is, one of the things that's almost always in a privileged group and almost always abused, whether it's on prem or not, is service accounts. Services and the tools that people use. I mean, SolarWinds is prime example. These service accounts require those privileges to do some useful functionality, and that's what the program is designed for. So, uh, I think they're always going to be a problem, and there's always going to be a kind of cat and mouse pushback game where you have to watch that uh, access and and least privilege model. Uh, but you're always going to be up against the business use case and the functionality that that is required for those to do what they need to do. Uh, just wrapping up, um, I saw an article that was increasing the resiliency against SolarGate and other sophisticated attacks with Microsoft Defender. And then that was my story number 10. My story number 9 was remote code execution vulnerability affecting Microsoft Defender. Just let that sink in and go read both those articles. Yep. Uh, also, a user successfully runs Ubuntu on a jailbroken iPhone 7 uh, if, if only that was like practical, right? Obviously, this was just an academic exercise. Of course, you have to go all the way back to iPhone 7 to be able to find a vulnerability mm -hmm. that would allow you to do this. Kind of begs the question, if we did have full open access to Apple hardware, what we could actually accomplish also kind of reminds me of the M1 chip, right? M1 yep. chip is amazing. Mm -hmm. If you load and someone loaded... Um, QMU or some other virtualization yep. software on it. It was able to run Windows and it was way faster than even running Windows <laughs> natively on Intel hardware. And I was like, that's really telling. The M1 design, and from what I've heard yeah, from dude. every tech journalist and everyone that's reviewed it and tested it and benchmarked it, is that it's knocking it out of the park hey, performance-wise. Yeah, Intel and AMD, they're com he, Apple's coming for you. Right? Yep. It but I think that's an important... It's an important thing for innovation, right? Mm -hmm. I think Intel and AMD now need to step up their game and go. They're gonna they're gonna have their versions uh, of V Pro. Uh, Tyler, I think, is a a pretty close competitor um, to what the M1 chip is, I, I, is providing. I just think it's fascinating that we went through this period of of uh, 
processor diversity for such a long period, and then we consolidated down, right? And there was just Intel AMD. Yep. I mean, back back in the day, we had Sun in the game, we yep. had Deck in the game, we had I mean, we had a bunch of we had Irix, right? Irix with yeah. SGI, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. all right. And and then we consolidated down to these two, uh, putting aside the small mobile market for a minute. I know AMD right. and, and the IoT was you know MIPS has you know at yeah. least a dozen or more different versions too as well. But then Apple drops this bomb like mm. boom, we're going out on our own again. It's like whoa. And they Dude. did an amazing job with it. Yeah. I applaud them. Yeah. It's really amazing what yeah. they've accomplished from an engineering standpoint. Yeah. Paul, I got to click one like, quick last one. Yeah. Just, uh, uh, you know, off the record, no, not off the record, off the off the beaten path. Uh, man arrested for counterfeiting twenty five popsicle sticks to claim plies. Yeah, plies. Yeah, prize. Um, uh, in Japan, a uh, company, a popsicle company, said, uh, "Hey, if you." Eat enough of our popsicles. If you find one that has a secret code on it, you can get a uh, you know a very exclusive Pokemon card, which retail for about five hundred dollars on the on the secondary market. Five a five hundred dollar Pokemon card. Cool. So this guy found that if you had a winning one, you could basically take the code and you could basically print it on any old blank popsicle stick. Like a um, what do they call that when you? Print something on wood like that, Larry. What is that? Engraving or uh, laser, laser, laser engraving. engraving. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Etching. So he's laser etching. Yeah. He basically mm. found that he could do once he had a winning one, he could duplicate what was on the winning popsicle stick to any popsicle stick because there was nothing different about the popsicle yep. stick aside from the engraving. Mm -hmm. And he created a bunch of them and uh, you know redeemed twenty. So, uh, redeemed several of them, which raised suspicion because they all came from the same location. Yeah. Um, and he was arrested and charged with fraud because he redeemed these because there was an intent to defraud the company of being able to get these cards to make some money. I classify that as fraud. Again, yeah, I'm not a lawyer, but I would classify that as fraud. Agreed. Yeah. But the point was is clever. that, like, <laughs> clever, yes. Yeah. There wasn't anything special about the popsicle sticks aside from this picture. Yeah. <laughs> like, Wow. Yep. Wow. All right. You just totally made me go out shopping for a new MacBook now. And, pop and, <laughs> yeah. and, and popsicles. And popsicles. Pa and, popsicles. and popsicles. Yep. Um, but I know, seriously, I think it's going to put MacBook back in the game, right? I, I mean, agree, In the InfoSec industry, we had a moment there where we're like, ah, guys, come on, you're doing some shit that's well, just Well, there could still be a moment, Joff, um, as I research software. Some software providers, such as the uh, AV market, for example, uh, in researching some stuff for the show, they're like, we don't support M1 chip yet. Yeah. So be mindful of that. Like, yeah. if you're a user and you're like email, web browser, you, especially if you're <laughs> Safari and you're all into the Apple platform, you're reaping all the benefits of M1 using Apple software. Mm -hmm. You start delving outside of that into more specialized AV software, which is very popular on the Mac platform, right? DaVinci Resolve, we're talking like people that render movies and stuff like that. M1, it's going to take some time because it's Res ARM. It's going to be different. And yes, there's Rosetta 2. Re Rosetta 2, yeah. And, but uh, even uh, Leo Laporte was the one that was talking about it. It was like, yeah, some of my stuff still doesn't run. However, like when I go in a web browser and I start loading websites, he's like, it is super fast. So I think there's a lot of promise, Joff, once... The software keeps up uh, and starts to get updated. It's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. 
Did they did they make it so you can like upgrade the freaking memory and and the storage again no. or no? No, no, dude, it's Apple. Uh, Apple. It's, 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 that's game, even game more. Is- that's even more out the window. Like whatever you get with your M1, like that's what you have. Period. End of story. Yep. There is no updating, and, and, right? But also, I think, but it's it's telling because I think it's a diversion in. Uh, you know, from the hacker spirit, certainly that once you get an iPhone and they're like, "Hey, you've been listening to music at a certain volume level." I don't know if you come follow this uh-huh. story, right? You can turn that. You can, tur- you can turn that in off. the U.S. You can turn that, that off. In some other countries, you, the, the reported I saw that you can't. That they're like, "We need to turn the volume down for you." Like that's why I'm Android and Linux because I want that level of control. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I'm in control of my own eardrums. I know what safe listening levels nope. are and I want to moderate that myself. I don't want the software and hardware to dictate no. I, things I, like audio volume there, level. There's probably another story there, but you know, it's get it's getting late. It is getting late. Um, we covered a lot of ground in this yeah, segment. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And, and Tyler, I think you've probably been burned on the Apple thing from uh, someone who's bought you an Apple MacBook that Yo, Pennywise and Pound Foolish. Uh, and, I don't know, uh, man. And, I need, and, I need and, about 4 and, terabytes and about 64 gigs of memory. So when Apple can do that for me, yep, yep. I'm going to uh, think about it. Uh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I think uh, Apple with uh, 32 gigs of memory and 1 terabyte is good. But when they only buy you one with 128 gigs like that, you know, you know nope. Yeah, <laughs> you, can't, you can't deal with that. <laughs> no. Wait, hold on. 100 gigs of RAM or hard drive space? Hard drive space. Yeah, hard drive. Yep. No comment. Yeah, you can't deal with that. Nope. I struggle at 1 terabyte. Uh, and mine's a 2017 model, so I'm 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 sniffing around for something new. Yep. Yeah. My my one terabyte is comfortable, and I've been comfortable at one terabyte for years because there's stuff that you move to a NAS or whatever. But you know, it's getting late. Larry, take us out. Take us out. Over and terabytes. <laughs>